0: That's better, H-E-L-P, dot com.
2: I want to talk about two TV shows. Chances are you've heard of the first one.
0: Don't move. Don't you move.
2: I've always watched Cops. Uh, I, I,
3: I, I've always watched television as background noise. That's how I grew up. Uh, and um, and Cops is great for that because it's on like 10,000 times a day.
2: This is podcaster-slash-journalist Dan Taberski, who in 2019 produced and hosted a series called Running From Cops, all about the long-running TV show that follows police officers on the job. And he's exaggerating, of course, but not by as much as you'd think. There are over 1,000 episodes of Cops. It's syndicated. And not so long ago, you might legitimately see 15, sometimes 20 episodes running in a single 24-hour period.
3: Like, I, I had seen, even before starting this project, I estimate I've seen maybe 500 episodes
2: of the show. Um, wow. And so, I know, it's, <laughs> it's really shame, It's shameful. Because it's been on so long, COPS is an unintended treasure trove of data. A window into how police see themselves, because they have editing power, and about how policing has been presented en masse to an American audience. The show is like a franchise, Dan says, as predictable as McDonald's. There are always three segments... Each is 7 minutes, most end with someone in handcuffs. Just relax. So Dan had a team of screeners watch and take detailed notes on 846 episodes of the show.
3: Just from the actual date of the show, you can tell that Cops presents a world that is much more violent um, than the real world and much scarier than the real world. So three times the amount of violent crime, four times the amount of drug crime, ten times the amount of prostitution. Um... It also presents a world where the police are much more effective than they really are. So, you know, um, on the show, like if they pull somebody over, it ends up an arrest something like 90 percent of the time.
2: You might assume that cops has a bad record on race. that people of color are overrepresented in the arrests featured on the show. One of the wildest things Dan found was that isn't the case. But what it did show is that they were front loading crime by
3: people of color. So if you were a black person getting arrested on the show, it was more likely to happen in the first seven minutes. Um, and, and more so if it was a violent crime or a chase scene.
2: So that's one of the shows I wanted to talk about. Here's the other one.
4: From the White Mountains of the Northeast to the shores of the Atlantic Ocean, the conservation
2: officers of New Hampshire stop at nothing to protect the wildlife. Did
5: you kill the deer? Tell me the truth
2: right now. For its first seven seasons, Northwood's Law was filmed in Maine. But the last eight have all been set here in New Hampshire. Northwood's Law doesn't follow city cops. It follows state conservation officers from New Hampshire's Fish and Game Department.
6: I want to keep everybody safe. Shut it off!
2: In cops you might see a suspect get chased on foot.
6: No, he's <laughs>
2: in Northwood's law, it's more likely to play out on the back of a four-wheeler.
5: Put it in park. you flying.
2: In cops, you might see someone without a t-shirt on getting put in the back of a cruiser. Put it on too tight. It's because you were uncooperative in, the in Northwood's law, you might see an injured loon get wrapped in a blanket and driven 3 hours to an animal hospital. Oh boy.
6: Yeah, that doesn't look good, Sheldon.
2: Spoiler alert, it's, really it's lead poisoning. And no, the loon doesn't make it. In many, if not most states, conservation officers have the same basic powers as traditional law enforcement. They can make arrests, issue tickets and summons, etc. But on the ground, their job looks very unlike other forms of policing currently under scrutiny in America. The first episode of Northwood's Law filmed in New Hampshire, for example features a skunk rescue, a nosy bear being chased out of town, a multi-day search and rescue operation that ends with a drowning victim being pulled out of the Androscoggin River. The whole episode clocks in at 41 minutes, and throughout, there is only one ticket issued to a young man speeding on an unregistered ATV.
4: And that is grounded until it gets registered. Educate me next time? I am educating you right now. This is your ticket.
2: In fact you can count the number of honest-to-goodness arrests from the entire season on just one hand. As Dan Taberski pointed out, cops presents a world that's more dangerous than the one we live in. Northwood's Law presents something else. But what? I mean,
4: if if your question is, are they better at community policing, I mean, I would would absolutely hope so. Uh,
2: I
1: was always a police officer who believed in conservation. I wasn't a
5: conservationist. I'm asked all the time, "Why is this the Why is this law the law?"
2: This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Taylor Quimby, and for Sam Evans Brown. For the past few months, I've been watching Northwoods Law and conducting interviews in hopes of better understanding the purpose and role of conservation law enforcement, what they do, how they do it, and how they see themselves as depicted by reality TV. Today, I make my report, The Thin Green Line, the people who police the natural world, and how we use it. I used to watch Cops when I was a kid, but it isn't a kid's show. Northwood's Law, on the other hand, feels more geared towards a younger audience. It airs on Animal Planet, and the music and pacing remind me a little bit of shows like Steve Irwin, Crocodile Hunter. Why do <laughs> you I
4: have phone? Why do I have a phone? So I can make phone calls.
5: Why?
4: So if someone needs help, I can answer the phone and get to them.
2: Why? <laughs> but Northwood's Law wasn't always so gentle. The show got its start following the Maine warden service, and back then— it felt a little bit more like cops. More arrests, more chases. Even the opening theme felt grittier. For the game wardens of Maine. Hang on, what, what's that right there? The woods are filled with danger. Oh, smokes. And some worried that being followed by cameras was influencing the warden's service. In 2016, the Portland Press-Herald ran a feature story called Northwoods Lawless. And it centered on a raid that had taken place two years earlier when the main warden service had descended on the tiny town of Allagash, a one-road-in, one-road-out hamlet with a population just north of 200.
0: Meanwhile, up in roostic, the teams split up and traveled to their targets.
2: That night, 30 armed game wardens simultaneously knocked on nine doors in Allagash, hoping to root out local poachers after a two-year undercover investigation.
6: Tell me about the, the grouse.
4: Do you remember him bringing some grouse here?
2: It was codenamed Operation Red Meat, and netted about 300 charges against 21 individuals, but only two arrests. Offenses included the improper tagging of deer, the poaching of a grouse, taking too many trout. One man pled guilty, among other things, to serving the undercover officer a plate of illegal venison. To some, it felt over the top.
1: Nothing seems to have outraged the community more than the uh, alleged seizure of a 64-year-old woman's canned peaches that she'd uh, canned by hand, and they were seized during the raid and never returned to her.
2: This is Colin Woodard, the reporter behind the investigation. Colin's story got a lot of people riled up who said that the raid, peaches or no, was disproportionate to the crimes committed. They also alleged that the undercover agent involved had a history of unethical behavior that undermined the investigation. You know, in
1: total, I think we had something like, you know, accusations of serious misconduct by like 20 witnesses and two defense attorneys and seven seven separate incidents in seven counties and the state of Pennsylvania. You know, people alleging that the agent was drunk driving and plying drink to minors and planning evidence and inventing incidents.
2: Collins' story got the ear of then Maine Governor Paul LePage who, based on Colin's previous reporting, wasn't a fan. Here's a clip of LePage from a report by Maine Public Radio.
7: I, um, I don't put much faith in Colin Wood. However, that doesn't mean that I am going to sit by and just allow people to go undercover and drink beer and, and uh, encourage people to shoot deer. That's just not right.
2: And not long after all this drama, the Maine Warden Service undercover program was suspended. Also, the production company behind Northwood's Law, Engel Entertainment, announced they would be ending their arrangement with Maine. And that's how the show wound up coming to New Hampshire.
6: We didn't want a show of throwing people down and putting them in handcuffs and kicking and screaming and throwing them in. There's a lot of shows like that. I I wanted no part of it.
2: This is Colonel Kevin Jordan head of law enforcement with New Hampshire Fish and Game, New Hampshire's version of the Maine Warden Service. Colonel Jordan started out as a sergeant with a local police department in New Hampshire's north country, the most rural area of the state. But he moved to Fish and Game in the 90s, and he's been there ever since. He says he had to sell Engel Entertainment on the idea of exciting, suspenseful police TV without so many arrests.
6: We maintained we could create that, uh, that, vision without doing the abusing people. And I think we've done that and we've done it through search and rescue missions. We've done it through some of the wildlife uh, captures and relocations. That's exciting stuff If people don't see it every day. And and I think we can do that and still show that these guys have some empathy. They're compassionate. uh, They're fair. Um, In fact, sometimes I get complaints they're too easy on people.
2: If Colonel Jordan sounds less like a cop or a bureaucrat than he does a producer, It's because, in a way, he is. In exchange for access to Fish and Games officers, Angle Entertainment gives Colonel Jordan final edit. He, or one of his deputies, gets to screen and change every episode on the program. This arrangement is basically the same for the TV show Cops, and it's the biggest reason to question both shows' authenticity. It isn't so much documentary as it is a form of public relations. Dan Taberski of Running from Cops puts it this way.
3: A show like Cops hinges on the police departments providing access, giving access. And so um, even if there wasn't a contract, they would still—you can't piss off the cops because the, they're not going to want to do with you anymore.
2: But just because it's not documentary doesn't mean it's not educational. Each of these programs presents a self-image, a reflection of how the agency wants to be viewed— and where police agencies may have used cops in the past to make themselves look tough on crime, Colonel Jordan told me he's using Northwood's law to let people know that fish and game exist and that the laws they enforce really do matter. It's educational outreach, and ideally, a tool for recruitment.
6: So, you know, I remember seeing the first time I saw an Overlimit case made on the show. So a a fisherman catches two fish over the limit, and a warden is about to summons him. And as as we're editing that rough cut, I'm looking at that thinking the average person isn't going to understand this and they're going to think that's really not important. So we took a few minutes to explain to them and we did a whole segment on how those fish came to be in that water.
2: I couldn't find the exact scene that Colonel Jordan is talking about, but I've seen lots just like it. Where the officer in Northwood's law breaks the fourth wall to do a bit of explaining about what the crime is and sometimes why it's important.
6: So we took this opportunity to basically do some education with this person. Yep teach them the proper way to measure the fish, having that measuring tape flat on a flat surface and not running it around the curvature of the body. I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to take the fish. I know it's a little bit of confusion, but it still is an illegal fish. Now we're all on the same page and we won't have any more problems from here on out, right? Right. Okay, folks. Right. All right, um, I'm just gonna do up a warning real quick and I'll be right back with you.
2: It's worth explaining just how different the history of conservation law enforcement is from the rest of American policing. The two early ancestors of today's local police departments were night watches and, more predominantly, slave patrols. In the South, lawmakers wrote and passed slave codes to maintain control of black people forced into chattel slavery. White men were conscripted to capture and punish black people who broke those codes or tried to flee. These were slave patrols. And in some places, they were the first local groups dedicated to peacetime policing. In South Carolina and Virginia, slave patrols were formed directly from state militias. They patrolled rivers and towns and worked to keep black men and women from seeking freedom in the north or south in what's now Florida. Things weren't much better in the north, and when police departments formalized in the 1800s, Forces were staffed by immigrant populations that tended to divide along racial lines. And so policing has always carried racist and classist baggage from the very beginning. There's a really great podcast on this subject from the team at NPR's Throughline that I'd really recommend if you want to learn more. The early history of conservation law enforcement is quite different, although it is also tied to class in ways we'll touch on later. In the late 1800s, deforestation was impacting watersheds, polluting rivers, reducing habitat at alarming rates. Millions of birds were killed to provide feathers for the fancy hat industry. Moose had been extirpated in New York State, and the last eastern elk was shot and killed in Pennsylvania in 1877. Early conservationists were realizing public lands needed protecting, or at the very least, they needed more sustainable methods of exploitation states began by creating parks that eliminated or restricted development, by regulating fishing and hunting practices, issuing licenses, and by limiting take, how many animals a given individual can kill. In 1880, before there was even a statewide police agency, New York's governor created a team of eight men charged with enforcing these new laws throughout the entire state. They were called Fish and Game Protectors. Over the next 100 years, just about every state has followed suit with their own version of a conservation department, a Department of Parks and Wildlife, Department of Fish and Game, the Warden Service, Environmental Conservation Police. Same basic gig, different title. Each one is staffed with biologists who monitor wildlife or operate fish hatcheries, people who run hunting safety courses, and a lot of their work is still filtered through that conservationist lens of wildlife management. For example, animals are separated into two categories. Game animals and non-game animals. In other words, stuff we kill and stuff we don't. But the bread and butter of many of these agencies is their law enforcement wing, the department that actually does the enforcing. And today, that job looks a lot different than it did in 1880.
5: So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people think that conservation officers are out there, um, you know, saving animals and rescuing injured wildlife and and that kind of thing. And I mean, that that does happen occasionally, but um, for the most part, we're dealing with people and their interactions with um, our natural world.
2: This is Erica Billerbeck, a state conservation officer working for the Department of Natural Resources in Iowa. A talented watercolorist and lover of nature, Officer Billerbeck started out as an Iowa County naturalist. But after riding shotgun with a conservation officer, she decided to make the shift. And 20 years later, she has a book about her exploits called Wildland Sentinel. And sure, there are stories about catching poachers, but a lot of the exploits she describes involve patrolling parks and recreation areas.
5: Boating enforcement. I feel like that's more geared towards public safety. There's not a lot I'm doing out there on the reservoir that's protecting our natural world. I'm I'm stopping people from driving while they're drunk. I'm making sure people have their life jackets and stuff like that. So that's more public safety geared.
2: Having spoken to Erica and a few other veterans of conservation law enforcement, I'm ready to make a few guesses about how Northwood's Law, like COPS, skews reality. Here's the first one. Whereas the show COPS overemphasizes violent crime, drug crime, and prostitution, Northwood's Law goes out of its way to depict conservation officers as human Swiss army knives. They're rescuing wayward hikers, capturing raccoons, chasing down snowmobiles, busting poachers, and still finding time to check fishing licenses and lobster traps. And while it's true that the job does entail all of these duties, as seen on the program, the amount of time spent doing them isn't represented quite right. For example, of 31 individual scenes depicted in the eighth season of Northwood's Law, eight are centered on wildlife—injured birds, deer trapped in fences, that sort of thing. By comparison, only five scenes center on off-road recreational vehicles— unregistered four-wheelers, a helmet violation, an accident, trespassing charges— But data provided by Fish and Game shows that in 2019, officers spent more than three times as many billable hours patrolling off-road vehicles as they did dealing with hurt or dangerous animals. In fact, 57% of all the summons and warnings issued by Fish and Game officers that year were issued because of off-road vehicles. So what we see on Northwood's Law is reality skewed towards the natural world. Maybe because that's the image that Colonel Jordan is looking to project, or because that's what he and the folks at Engel Entertainment think the public wants. And some of the things most likely to wind up on an episode of Northwood's Law, cute animal rescues and the like, aren't even technically a part of Fish and Game's core mission, which is aimed at protecting and conserving the state's fish, wildlife, and marine resources. An injured skunk or raccoon is not considered a resource. In a lot of ways, this is the same story we've heard about and from traditional law enforcement agencies. Not enough officers, not enough time, and a growing list of too many responsibilities. Here's Colonel Kevin Jordan, who refers here to OHRVs, which stands for Off-Highway Recreational Vehicles. Uh, we didn't do,
6: I remember OHRV work was snowmobiles in the wintertime. Well, now OHRV work goes year-round because you've got the boom of ATVs. Calls for service for nuisance animals has increased. Problem woodchucks or skunks or trapped animals or rabies. And search and rescue calls have at least tripled. Uh, and I only see that increase. And your staffing,
2: I'm sure in Iowa it's the same, your
6: staffing numbers have not coincided with those
2: increase. This brings me to the second way that Northwood's law distorts reality. In trying to educate the public about fish and game laws, the show portrays the natural world and our moral responsibility to obey the laws that protect it in oversimplistic ways.
4: During the archery season, you can take a deer with a bow and arrow. You can never take a deer with a 22 caliber rimfire. It's not heavy enough of a round to make a clean ethical kill, and they're illegal to use in the state of New Hampshire, except for on small
2: game. And this is true for local police, too. You don't see officers debating the legalization of marijuana on cops. But conservation officers have to explain wildlife laws and defend their validity not only to those who break them, but to skeptical judges and prosecutors who don't see their value.
1: I think conservation officers across the land are having a hard time recruiting people who have that passion and that understanding of natural resource management and why the law is what it is.
2: This is William Brown, who was a conservation officer in Indiana for some 30 years, Officer Brown is now Professor Brown. He runs the Conservation Law Enforcement Program out of Vincennes University. And he told me a story about how Indiana conservation officers arrested a man who was selling wild, illegally harvested ginseng.
1: Well, his nephew was a deputy in local, and I knew the, knew the kid since he was a sixth grader. But he comes up and he goes, what in the world are you guys doing arresting my uncle on a misdemeanor for some stupid root? Well, he doesn't understand natural resources, doesn't have the passion, would make a horrible conservation officer. And quite frankly, no matter what I said to try to get him to believe that this was a very serious violation, he just wouldn't do it.
2: The nuance here is layered. Conservation officers are protecting an over-harvested plant, but a plant that is not currently endangered or at risk of going extinct. In a number of states, ginseng can be legally dug up, even in national forests, with the proper licenses and permission. So part of what conservation officers are guarding is the idea of public and private goods, about who gets to exploit the natural world, where, and in what ways. We're not talking about the green equivalent of murder or arson, crimes for which people have strong moral associations. These crimes have more in common with things like trespassing, parking illegally, and failing to register your car.
0: Wednesday, Indiana
3: conservation officers followed an anonymous tip that a suspect was trespassing onto private property and stealing hundreds of dollars' worth of -of out-of-season ginseng.
2: In the 1800s, the Adirondack State Park was created in part to protect the watershed of New York. It was one of the first examples of new conservation ethics as played out in public policy. And in creating the park, boundaries were created between public and private property that in practice had never been paid attention to by locals. The collection of firewood on state land was suddenly considered lumber theft, leaving people without property little choice but to become criminals. Some of the earliest fish and game laws in American history were implemented in the Adirondacks too. Hunting seasons that coincided with peaks in tourism, take limits that allowed outsiders to kill multiple animals but prevented locals from getting enough meat year round. Others restricted hunting by method. It became illegal to hunt using lights or at night, to fish using certain kinds of bait. These laws were based on historical English traditions that sought to define civilized forms of hunting from base subsistence. In an 1894 letter to his commanding officer, fish and game protector Robert Brown declared he had made 30 arrests that year. He asked for boat money in order to be able to catch duck hunters illegally shooting from steam launches And he finished his letter with this gem. Nearly all of the violations committed in Richmond County is the work of foreigners, principally Italians, as you no doubt observed from my monthly reports. To shoot and trap songbirds seems to me to be the height of their ambition, and when caught and convicted, invariably have to be committed to jail. Respectfully yours, Robert Brown. The moral and scientific certainty with which fish-and-game laws are sometimes framed, in real life and on Northwood's law, masks their direct lineage to this history. Case in point, fly fishing. Fly fishing can be elegant to watch, but it's also a much more expensive and, frankly, much more difficult method of fishing than others. William Brown says there's a stretch of river in Indiana known as the Brookville Tailwaters, which the state stocks with brown and rainbow trout.
1: So the fly fishermen would come from all over, and you would see them all standing up and down that that creek uh, fishing for these trout, which is not an experience you get much here in the state of Indiana to catch those trout. So they were in love with it. Well, then you got these small children who would come down there with corn, put corn on their hook, and throw it out there and catch more than the fly fishermen.
2: This is one reason that, across the country, fly fishermen lobby their local fish and game departments for fly-fishing-only trout waters. And it works. There are fly-fishing-only waters in Indiana and in New Hampshire. Because not everybody has the means or skill required to do this type of fishing, it does have the effect of limiting take. And so you can argue that it is one method of, quote-unquote, protecting the resource. But it also has the effect of limiting access to those with the means to pay. Here's Iowa State Conservation Officer Erica Billerbeck.
5: I mean, it's a very different experience checking, you know, a fly fisherman that's out, you know, in his fancy gear and um, expensive rods, you know, going after a trout in in one of our trout streams in northeast Iowa versus somebody who's sitting on the bank with literally a pop can with a line rolled around it. You know, they're stretching it to pay for a fishing license. So if you give them a ticket on top of whatever it is that they've, you know, like they're breaking some kind of law, but they do have the license, you know, it's like, ah, I just, I struggle with that probably more than some people do. You know, do I want to make more of a burden on this person by having to pay for this? Or can I talk to them and really get them to understand, you know, the rules?
2: More Outside In after a break.
0: Hey, this is Jeff Lewis from Radio Andy. Live and uncensored, catch me talking with my friends about my latest obsessions, relationship issues, and bodily ailments. With that kind of drama that seems to follow me, you never know what's going to happen.
7: You can listen to Jeff Lewis live at home or anywhere you are. Download the SiriusXM app for over 425 channels of ad-free music, sports, entertainment, and more. Subscribe now and get three months free. Offer details apply.
5: Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind.
2: When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Taylor Quimby, and for Sam Evans-Brown. Hunters and anglers love a good story— about the big one, the one that got away. But there's another genre of tale told in the lodge. Even I've got one. A couple years ago, I was driving home after a night camping with my elementary school-aged son, and we stopped at a river to fish. We hadn't been there for more than five minutes when a black fish-and-game truck pulled into the dirt parking area behind us. The officer got out. He approached politely, asked me if we had caught anything. We wound up chatting for probably a full five minutes before he asked me the question I knew was coming if I had my fishing license. And I did, but it was from the previous year. I had let it expire, and even though I kept telling myself I would renew it again and again, I just hadn't bothered. I gave the officer my old license, folded and faded in the back of my wallet. He told me to keep fishing and went back to his truck. When he came back, he gave me his business card, along with a you-should-know-better lecture. He told me to enjoy the day and he told me to order my fishing license in the next 24 hours. He told me to email him as soon as I did.
7: Anyone who's hunted, in, you know, in New Hampshire or fished in New Hampshire for any length of time probably has a, you know, a CEO story. <laughs> and you know whether they're embellished or not, you know, hard to say.
2: This is Scott Rulo, a big game guide and owner of a shooting preserve in Hillsborough, New Hampshire that specializes in pheasant and partridge. What's called Upland Hunting. He works with Fish and Game in order to license his business, but he's also had run-ins with conservation officers, COs, while out hunting.
7: In one situation, a friend of mine uh, had a handgun, uh, not illegal to have a handgun uh, on him, but he didn't have a concealed permit. He was from Massachusetts. We were not a constitutional carry state then, and he had a heavy coat on over it. He could have cited him. He didn't. He just chose to, you know, point out the error and say, hey, look, you know, if you're going to carry a sidearm, you need to have it exposed. That's the rules. And those were the rules at the time. Um, And I thought that was an example of him using, you know, good judgment.
2: One thing I've noticed watching Northwood's Law is that it depicts a world in which conservation officers really like to talk it out. When things get heated the officers on the show usually work to de-escalate the situation.
6: Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, dude. I work
7: hard. I pay a lot of taxes. 30 miles an hour, 25 miles an hour.
2: And going into the story, the cynic in me assumed that this is a product of careful editing, that what I see on the screen is just part of the story, and that the nasty stuff sometimes gets edited out. But in my own experience, and in Scott's, the reputation that Fish and Game maintains for a relatively low-profile and fairly lenient approach is true in real life, too.
7: Um, I have heard, you know, people grumbling about, you know, fish cops. But, you know, pulling someone over, you know, on Winnipesaukee and making sure that you're following all the regulations with your boat, you've got all the right PFDs and everything else in the boat, not necessarily a bad thing. You know, they're, they're just doing a job.
2: Erica Billerbeck says there's a phrase for the relationship building that conservation officers do in Iowa the chatty, trust-building part of the job. She heard it first from an old-timer at a yearly statewide meeting.
5: Uh, He called it rolling the cob. You need to be able to roll the cob.
2: The idea being, if you were to meet a hunter in the field and rest your boot on a straight ear of corn while you chatted them up, you should have rolled all the kernels off by the time you're done. That's rolling the cob.
5: This basically means taking time to really get to... um, no landowners and no hunters and no fishermen and um, get to know the people that are using our areas. So that's a way to build build a relationship with your community and um, you know get information that you otherwise maybe wouldn't get. Yeah, conservation officers, uh, game wardens, whatever you want to call us. I mean, we've been doing community policing from day one. It's like we're the original com- community police officers.
2: So are conservation officers better than their peers when it comes to working with the people they police? That's hard to say, but they do seem more willing to exercise discretion. Conservation officers have to do a lot of education. As I explained before, they've got their work cut out for them with the public as well as prosecutors and judges. But even if you know you're breaking the law, taking too many fish or hunting after dark, officers don't want to discourage you from hunting or fishing legally.
5: I'd rather go home and think, you know, maybe that person would have learned better by getting a ticket. Like, I probably should have given him a ticket. But I'd rather think that than go home and think, I just made that person never want to fish again,
2: you know. And this isn't just one officer's opinion. It's from the top down. Colonel Kevin Jordan.
6: It's not our job to punish people. Our job is to change behaviors, is to gain compliance. And so I ask these new kids a lot. Uh, Is there a way to do that without issuing a summons? And of course there is. You can talk to some folks and issue a warning and they'd be devastated and they would never do that again. Or they didn't understand a, a law or regulation. So you take five extra minutes to explain it to them and you get that compliance. So a summons isn't always the answer.
2: I can't say for sure that conservation officers are better at community policing. And these anecdotes aren't a substitute for concrete data. What I can tell you is that New Hampshire's Fish and Game Department doesn't have any civil rights settlements from the past few years, hasn't had an officer involved shooting in decades, and when I contacted police accountability organizations about Fish and Game, none of them had anything to say, good or bad. And these days, staying under the radar may be the police equivalent of maintaining a pretty darn good reputation. So how do they do it? What, aside from rolling the cob, incentivizes conservation officers to pursue this gentle form of policing? One reason that officers push towards compliance rather than force might have to do with funding. If the general question is, can incentives change
4: behavior, right, um, and can incentives shape culture, I think, I think
2: the answer is an unequivocal yes. This is Jamiles Larte, a staff writer for The Marshall Project, focused on policing and criminal justice. Jamiles knows that budgets can play a big role in how cops do their work. In 2015, a Justice Department report in Ferguson, Missouri, revealed repetitive constitutional abuses against Black residents there, and a system of what he calls extractive policing. They had been recruited to raise revenue um,
4: by by finding ways to levy, uh, you know, excessive fines and fees in such a way that it was contributing a massive amount to the uh, local government
2: budget. Jamiles says the degree of abuse exhibited in Ferguson, where such a massive amount of the city's budget was raised this way, is overall quite rare. After all, fines and fees typically disappear into the court system, as opposed to getting cycled back into police departments. But broadly speaking, Jamiles does speculate there is a relationship between arrest numbers, crime rates, and the amount of resources dedicated to local police. I think it probably stands to, to reason that in a lot of
4: places... Um, the way that the police get their budget up is by telling City Hall, City Council, the mayor,
2: whoever, we need money because we made this many arrests. But in the case of New Hampshire fish and game officers and a number of conservation agencies around the country, budgets aren't determined by the state. They're mostly self funded through the sale of fishing and hunting licenses as well as things like OHRV registrations. In other words, if people don't comply, if people chose to ignore fish and game, they'll be out of a job.
1: The B cop, if he witnesses a violation, he doesn't care whether they're going to correct their behaviors or not. Um, we are still wanting them to r- retain them as hunters and fishermen, and we want them to begin to comply with the law and understand the law better. And if I catch you in a small violation, I still love you as a brother, you know what I mean? And so, you know, let's let's get this corrected, here's a citation. I don't know how many people said it, but it always was a compliment when they say thank you after you give them a citation. That means that we, we are trying to gain compliance.
2: Does that make sense? There are times on Northwood's Law where that I love you as a brother vibe feels like a genuinely positive gesture, like the mismeasured fish that was one inch shy of the limit. Now we're all on the same page and we won't have any more problems from here on out, right?
6: Wait, okay,
5: folks. All right, um, but there
2: it. are other times when it feels like lawbreakers are taking advantage of conservation officers who see them as customers rather than criminals.
4: All right, just this sounds. Well, instances like this is where it abuses for the rest, though. So I want to try and take this opportunity to talk with him, see if I can teach him something about the local rules and laws. Um, maybe he could try and learn something from it.
2: And over time, it's hard not to see that dynamic through the context of race.
4: I mean, if, if your question is, are they better at community policing? Like, I mean, I would, I would absolutely hope so, because there's not a lot of contention in that. There's not a lot of, yeah, it's not contested space, right? It's, it's hunters and fishers and police who are there to monitor hunting and
2: fishing. Of our 42 Fish and Game officers in New Hampshire, 41 are men and all of them are white. In all of the episodes of Northwood's Law that I watched, all of the suspects were white too. That is just like a much narrower band
4: of, of, uh, of experiences and relationships versus uh, police as this jack-of-all-trades Uh, responding to every single social ill, every single mental health crisis. It's just there's so much more contention and there's so much more to go wrong. And there's so, so
2: there's infinitely more variables. When I had the idea for this episode, I hadn't seen a single episode of Northwood's Law. I just heard about it. But I had listened through to Dan Taberski's series, Running From Cops, and millions of people worldwide at the time were taking to the streets to protest the killing of black and brown people by police. And with that in mind, I think I was expecting to see some arrests that made me at least uncomfortable. Scenes that in context mirrored abuses of power and violence that too frequently fill our Twitter feeds. And it did make me uncomfortable, but not in the way I expected. I was annoyed. So many mouthy jerks on the show got away with nothing more than a stern talking to. All law enforcement officers have some degree of discretion. When to enforce and when to let someone off with a warning.
6: In fact, sometimes I get complaints they're too easy on people.
2: Conservation officers, it seems, take that liberty more than others.
6: And if I catch you in a small violation, I still love you as a brother, you know
1: what
2: I mean? But would they? If the spaces in New Hampshire being patrolled by conservation officers were more diverse?
5: Are they going to learn better by receiving a citation, or are they going to learn better by getting a warning?
2: Would a black hunter with a concealed weapon have gotten away with a warning?
7: And I thought that was an example of him using, you know, good judgment.
2: In a way, this is another type of injustice. That so many innocent black and brown people are treated with violence and suspicion by law enforcement, while another group of mostly white hunters and fishermen are slapped on the wrist— by a force composed entirely of white officers. Right, well, I think I've gotten the point across from here, so... Oh, yeah. So, have a good one.
7: You too.
2: Thanks a lot. Police reform activists say they're not looking for white people to be treated more violently. They're asking that people of color be treated the same, less violently. I asked just about everybody I spoke to for this story whether there were lessons that traditional cops could learn from conservation officers about leniency or discretion. And in the end... Pretty much everybody said it's just not fair to compare the two. So maybe Fish and Game doesn't provide a model that others can easily adopt. And maybe Northwood's Law isn't a perfectly accurate depiction of their job. But maybe the fantasy we see on Northwood's Law is one worth watching. So that we can imagine a police force where animal rescues outnumber arrests. Where search and rescue are on par with stakeouts and summons. A world where heroes almost never draw their guns. Instead, they just roll the cop. This episode of Outside In was produced by me, Taylor Quimby, Justine Paradise, and Sam Evans-Brown. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is NHPR's director of Wrapping Injured Loons in Blankets. Special thanks to the people I spoke to about conservation law enforcement in some way or another. Jenny Palomino, Meredith Gore, Charles Hoyck, David Sykes, John Sigler, and Tim Huss. Thanks again to NPR's Throughline, whose episode on policing, and Carl Jacoby, whose book Crimes Against Nature were both instrumental in outlining the early history of American policing and of early conservation law enforcement in New York's Adirondack Park. Also, thanks to you and everybody who reached out during our winter fun drive. If you like like the kind of work we're doing, show your support for the program any time of year with a donation at outsideinradio.org. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a product of New Hampshire Public Radio.
0: There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
2: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax,
5: and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind.